Today is Saturday, July 17th. The year is 2021. This is No Easy Answers, and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Well, thank you for tuning in from wherever you happen to be listening. My name is Jules Taylor. This is No Easy Answers, and I, like always, am delighted to have you with us for today's episode. No Easy Answers is a podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition, and we are 100% listener-supported. So if you like what we do and you want to support us, we would love to have you visit our Patreon page. Subscribers get some of the interviews early, and right now there are three or four interviews yet to be released, so it's a good time to sign up if you want early access to some forthcoming content. You could also leave us a glowing review on Audible or Apple Podcasts. That really helps listeners find the show. Check the show notes for links to our Reddit, our Discord, our Twitter. And you know, I find this show really benefits the most from word of mouth. So if you've got some friends or family or other interlocutors in your life that you think would really enjoy our content, we would really appreciate it if you shared this podcast with them. Okay, so on to today's episode. Before we get started, I would just like to say definitively, this is the last episode in this series. I think six episodes on fascism is quite enough. That's like nine hours of content. That's five scholarly guests. But the way that we are going to wrap all of this up is with a conversation that I think should connect a lot of the dots together. One of the dots I've been attempting to connect for listeners is the way that philosophy intersects with fascism. You know, we spoke to Professor Richard Polt about Martin Heidegger. We spoke with Matthew Lowry about Carl Schmitt. And both Heidegger and Schmitt were important thinkers for the fascist movements of their time. Both were card-carrying members of the Nazi party. And both are still held in the highest regard by intellectually conscious fascists. But these guys, Heidegger and Schmidt, I mean, they weren't the progenitors of the conservative revolution. Guys like Julius Evola, Carl Schmidt, Martin Heidegger, they got their ideas from somewhere. And the philosopher we need to talk about is Friedrich Nietzsche. My guest on the show today is Ronald Beener, professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He is the author of several books like Political Philosophy, What It Is and Why It Matters, What's the Matter with Liberalism, and more recently, the book he's written that we'll be speaking about today, Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right. In a forthcoming article that Professor Beener was kind enough to share with me, he asserts that Nietzsche was the originator of the conservative revolution. He cites that assertion as far back as a 1921 article written by Thomas Mann, and more recently by Domenico Lacerdo in his 2002 publication titled Nietzsche, the Aristocratic Rebel. Now, Domenico Lacerdo was an Italian Marxist philosopher and historian, and his book on Nietzsche is newly translated into English and released in 2020. It's a thousand pages long, detailing the intellectual life of Nietzsche, but as you'll hear in my conversation with Ronald Beener, you don't need to read a thousand pages to figure out that Nietzsche was advocating for a radical aristocracy and was deeply anti-egalitarian. To quote from Professor Beener's book, Dangerous Minds, quote, Frederick Nietzsche once wrote the following, 
The great majority of men have no right to live and serve only to disconcert the elect among our race. I do not yet grant the unfit that right. There are even unfit peoples. Martin Heidegger once wrote the following. An enemy is each and every person who poses an essential threat to the Dasein of the people and its individual members. The enemy does not have to be external, and the external enemy is not even always the more dangerous one. And it can seem as if there were no enemy. Then it is a fundamental requirement to find the enemy, to expose the enemy to the light, or even first to make the enemy so that the standing against the enemy may happen, and so that Dasein may not lose its edge. The challenge is to bring the enemy into the open, to harbor no illusions about the enemy, to keep oneself ready for attack, to cultivate and intensify a constant readiness, and to prepare the attack looking far ahead with the goal of total annihilation. These are both incitements to genocide. The point of quoting these statements is not to impugn Nietzsche and Heidegger as important thinkers. Nietzsche was a great philosopher. Heidegger was a great philosopher. Nothing in this book is meant to challenge their intellectual stature. There's no intention here to expel them from the history of philosophy. But they are not innocent. Great thinkers can be dangerous thinkers. And to the extent that their ideas contribute to bad ideological currents in the present, we have to be alert to their non-innocence and do our utmost to not become their apologists. We need to commence a serious engagement with Nietzsche and Heidegger because, in the end, these thinkers are not the resources for the left that we have so often been told that they are. In a longer-term view, they are more likely to be resources for the right and far-right." So we'll get to our interview with Professor Beaner now, but one more thing before we do. Stick around after the interview because, as so often happens with our guests, he and I chatted for a bit after we finished recording and before we ended our video conference, and he pointed me to three different passages from Nietzsche which are emblematic of the reasons we need to revisit and commence a serious engagement with Nietzsche. If one wanted to make an argument for Nietzsche being a proto-fascist, these are three passages you want to be familiar with. One from Twilight of the Idols, one from the genealogy of morals, and another is from the will to power. I found these passages from within some audiobooks, and those will play back after our interview, and I didn't have to worry about copyright infringement because, you know, all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. So here's my interview with Professor Ronald Beener. Dr. Ronald Beaner, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to No Easy Answers. I'm really excited about this conversation. We have a whole list of stuff to talk about here. And uh, I guess I wanted to start with our first question, which is just that you were the author of a book called Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of these interviews sort of start out with you by asking you how you arrived at the inspiration to write this book. Um, but I'm wondering if you could speak to us about why there is a particular urgency uh, to reconsider the way we read and the way that we engage with writers like Nietzsche and Heidegger. Okay, great. Well, first of all, I'm 
delighted to have this conversation. I'm grateful for your interest in the book, and uh, uh, it's a real pleasure for me to talk, talk about the book and the the issues that uh, that, that animate that book. So I first became aware of um, the 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 kind of vanguard intelligence, you know, the radical rights, you could call it, at the beginning of 2015. So I uh, came to an awareness of, you know, the Richard Spencers and Greg Johnsons and Jason Georgiani's and Arctos and Daniel Freeberg and uh, Countercurrents and the National Policy Institute. I mean, that's, it's one big interlocking network. So if you enter at any one point in you know any one node you very quickly become aware of all, all the others they're all you know like any network they're all kind of networked into each other so once you kind of step into that door this whole other world opens up to you and it was a big shock to me that you know in many cases very smart very intelligent very educated people many of them with you know PhDs, some of them anyway, with PhDs in what I do, which is political theory, then becoming, you know, neo-fascists or, or, you know, Greg Johnson's case, I don't think it's unfair to say a Nazi, you know, or Richard, or, or Richard Spencer's case for that matter. Anyway, I became aware of all that in right at the start of 2015. And uh, at, at, at that point, um, you know, they, all these people—they uh, seemed like a, a million miles from the political mainstream. Okay, well, fast forward now to the summer of 2016, and the, the world changes in a pretty dramatic way. It's a kind of shifting of the zeitgeist, you know, mm -hmm. and a, a very dramatic one. Um, you know, and I guess you can date it from. Um, Hillary Clinton's famous alt-right speech in Reno, Nevada, in August of 2016, where she, for the first time, popularized the term alt-right, which has not had not been a part of political discourse. I mean, again, this was uh, basically January of 2015, so I got a kind of 18-month 18, 18 uh, jump on the rest of the world in terms of for instance, knowing who Richard Spencer is, or knowing what white nationalism is, or what the alt right is, you know, like these were not part of our political world at all. Uh, as I said, they were like a million miles from what one a reasonable person would have considered the political mainstream. Well, all that changes in during the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential campaign. So, you know, Hillary Clinton gets up in Reno, Nevada, makes a speech and says there's this thing called the alt-right. You know, they're thrilled with Trump. He's drawing energies from them. And this is dangerous. And all that's, you know, was just patently true. Uh, but as one might have expected, this would put some serious dent in Trump's presidential campaign. Well, some of that seemed to do the opposite. <laughs> oh, the the, the alt-righters themselves were jumping for joy i mean for them it was like oh well david 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 duke is running for president and he could actually win and and in fact he did win you know and and so they were thrilled that hillary clinton you know gave them a kind of profile they didn't previously have and that profile did not 
destroyed Donald Trump, but somehow energized him or made clear where he was drawing his energy or where, you know, what his base was. And well, this was all very shocking that in a short space of time, from my discovering what the, you know, that there was such a thing as the alt-right, uh, that there was a radical right intelligentsia that somehow new neo-fascist intelligentsia that sort of, you know, um, burst back into life to it becoming pretty central to world politics, you know? And then not only does Trump get elected, that's bad enough. What does he do? Brings Steve Bannon into the West Wing. Uh, you know, Steve Bannon is like, you know, he's like Dr. Evil. It's like, he might as well bring Alexander Dugan into the West Wing, give him, give him a nice big office in the West Wing. Wing you know? It's like, so for me, it was kind of the conjunction of those two sources of grave alarm. Grave alarm that there was a neo-fascist intelligentsia that was very active and it was recruiting and drawing lots of people and drawing, you know, it's Greg Johnson uh, bragged in a kind of famous video that was uh, a kind of embedded video in New York Times story about the alt-right. You know, we're, our hits keep going up and they're going through the roof and every every month we get higher viewers than we had the month before. Well, you know, so the, the, uh, isn't it shocking to me that serious intellectuals could be neo-fascists, you know, 70, mere 70 years after the end of the Second World War. So that's like cause for grave alarm there. And then you know, Trump, Trumpism, and then Bannon with an office in the West Wing. You put those two things together, that's that's basically why I wrote the book, a feeling of, I got to do something to try and uh, warn my fellow intellectuals and to try and warn uh, fellow citizens that, look, something's happened to our world. It's sort of turned upside down. I mean, a few years ago, it would be unthinkable that you know, neo-fascism could be a significant presence in Western liberal democracies. Well, now they're popping up everywhere. You know, Hungary, Poland, uh, France could have a neo-fascist president a year from now. Donald Trump, um, Bannon, you know, uh, I mean, Bannon himself said, uh, you know, he, he referred to Trumpism, but, and he meant Bannonism because he thought he was really the the, the the core of the movement, and that's probably why Trump got, got rid of him, ultimately. But, you know, he said this is the birth of a new political order. Well, it's starting to look more and more like <laughs> there was some truth to that. It was a, a new zeitgeist, and intellectuals had need to respond to this. And so that's, that's why I wrote the book. Hmm. Now, uh, I think Nietzsche and Heidegger are fairly key figures in all this, and they get the bulk of the attention in the book. Why is that? Well, for one thing, um, if you if you ask these uh, radical right intellectuals themselves, that's what they'll tell you, that they draw key inspiration from these two thinkers. I mean, lots of other thinkers as well, but, but these two are at the top of the list. And in my book, I quote from Greg Johnson's uh, website, Countercurrents, um, a, a, a list, uh, uh, not by him, but by one of his writers, a list of the alt-right canon. Well, Nietzsche and Heidegger are number one and number two on that list, which 
to me, it's very telling. And then Carl Schmitt's number three, uh, interestingly. Uh, uh, and uh, But Nietzsche's uh, number one. And um, I think they're serious about that. I mean, you know, Dugan has written, I believe, four volumes of commentary on Martin Heidegger. Volume one, published actually by Richard Spencer, translated mm-hmm. and by Duganite, then wife. <laughs> and, and, you know, all the other, and they, you know, so he's telling us, this is, for me, this is a key thinker. He's not alone in that. They all do. They all kind of, if you ask them who, who are the two master thinkers for the alt-right, well, they'll all say Nietzsche and Heidegger. Uh, Richard Spencer has given some uh, prominent interviews in which he said, well, he became a fascist by reading Nietzsche. You know, first as an undergrad uh, at the University of Virginia, then he went to Chicago and did a master's in the humanities, took a seminar on Nietzsche, and there was no turning back. And and it was the, that's the road to Charlotte, Charlottesville started with Rich, Richard Spencer sitting down and re- reading Nietzsche. So there's plenty of you know, pretty clear evidence, or same with Greg Johnson, or same with, you know, any of these people, they, they, this is, this is what's, this is where, where they're drawing their intellectual juice, you know, from, from these thinkers. And, you know, in terms of the mainstream academic reception of Nietzsche and Heidegger, well, we get no clue about that, that these were even possible resources for the right, let alone being leading uh, you know, um, uh, commanding uh, resources for the right. Uh, well, we got to set the record straight on that. If if fascism's going to be sticking around, I mean, we thought it 1945. We thought it was, you know, uh, dead and buried. Well, it's not dead and buried now. It's we're now 75 years later, and they, the fascism has crawled out of the grave. And, and and Nietzsche and Heidegger as resources for fascism, that too is crawled out of the grave. Uh, I mean, during those 75 years, 70 or 75 years, when it seemed like fascism was completely dead, well, fine, you know, you want to have a, a liberal or leftist reading of Nietzsche Heidegger, no problem. I mean, you know, it's no problem with people being left Nietzscheans or left Heideggerians when fascism is, is dead and buried. But when fascism is coming back, you know, look at Nietzsche's influence on the Weimar generation during the 20s. It, it, it did a lot to cultivate the soil for what happened in the 30s. And if we're replaying Weimar Germany, <laughs> we better be sensitive to that and take, you know, see the possible appropriations of Nietzsche that contributed in during the so-called conservative revolution to what became, you know, fascism. In, in the 30s, uh, if we're going, we, we have to we have to actually learn try and learn a little bit from from very painful history of the 20th century. And uh, so, you know, my book was kind of modest uh, att- attempt at a modest contribution to all that. I mean, that's not the only one. There's plenty of other people from whom you could learn, you know, uh, the perils of these thinkers. Uh, you know, and I drew a lot on other people who would. I think we're reading them with open eyes, uh, mm. uh, but but most people in the contemporary academy are are reading them with pretty pretty firmly closed eyes, and we have to. I think we have in this new era, this new zeitgeist where fascism is back in the game. We, we better we better you know kind of wake up and smell the coffee with respect to all of that. 
Yeah. Or I could go on for two hours. No, no, that's cool, man. I, I, I could listen to you speak for two hours. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I'm just curious because I know you mentioned that like Clinton came out and said something about the alt-right, entered that into the vernacular uh, in mainstream anyway. And then you had this, uh, you know, the other two things in this sort of uh, thing that subsumed you into this rabbit hole was obviously the Clinton mentioning alt-right. Then there was Steve Bannon and Trumpism, right? Um, no, so but I'm it just... started before it started in, in the beginning of 2015. That's when I became aware of all these far right uh, websites. And then to my shock, the, the rest of the world, too. I got clued in 18 months before the rest of the world got clued in. So I had to jump on the rest of the world. Right, right. Were you that something that seemed so far from the political mainstream. Now it's part of a U.S. presidential campaign. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I hear you. And I think a lot of us yeah. were there right there with you. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering if you were um, previous to 2015, were you aware of like radical traditionalism by that point? Or is that something that entered in? to this, uh, uh, to your focus or to your awareness rather, um, by way of the, all these changes happening around 2015? Well, no, I became aware of that, as I said, end of 2014, beginning of 2015. Mm. I, I, I learned who Alexander Dugan was. I never heard of him. Um, you know, we admitted to our grad program someone who was uh, keen on Dugan. I had never heard of him. My colleagues had never heard of him. Uh, we admitted the student to our program, and I I came to uh, discover who Dugan was. Well, once you're, you know, again, as I said earlier, once one door opens, then you, you it's everything's right. Everything else. So, Julia Zavala, traditionalism, you know, all this stuff. That's you know, if you're if you're trying to start educating yourself about. Who, who the hell is Alexander Dugan? Well, you very you read a few books and very quickly so find out. So now I, I, I you know something about it. I mean, who would I would not have dreamt that that there was any interest or any that this was on the map at, at all? You know, esoteric Nazism, crazy stuff. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Evola considered himself to the right of both Italian and German fascism. Right. Right. So how how. Living 70 years, 75 years after the end of Second World War, how how can this, how can anyone, you know, who knows anything about um, contemporary history, um, be interested in this, uh, uh, kind of uh, get involved in it, connect themselves to it, align themselves with it, but, you know, Dugan has, has had a big, and we'll maybe talk about Dugan sure. later show, but uh, yeah, I mean, all this was uh, deeply uh, shocking to me. Of course, Evola, you know, he did have an influence subsequent to world, the end of World War II, you know, in the 70s. He sure. was the guru of, uh, uh, you know, far-right terrorists in Italy. Right. So um, it, it's not like it was completely <laughs> dead. It's just how much awareness did one have of these things? Well, now we have no choice because the world has changed and the zeitgeist has changed. Yeah. I mean, I hope we just go back to where we were 10 years ago, but I don't have a huge confidence right now that that's going to happen. So we have to educate ourselves. So we find out. So there are people who are influenced by Jewish or whoever, you know, and certainly Nietzsche, you know. Yeah. You know, um, I, I will say that uh, 
you know, this, this entire inquiry on this podcast has come about um, by trying to answer the question of like, why po the political right and left would, ha would share sort of philosophical influences or share, because it, it doesn't seem like our worldviews are in any way compatible, right? So how are we upholding someone like Nietzsche or Heidegger, folks on the left, when very clearly there are folks on the right that find inspiration from them to seek antithetical ends to uh, to our perspective on the world, to having a, a sort of central tenet to our ideological outlook being a sort of moral egalitarianism, right? It, it seems like the two different groups of people on the political right and right and left are deriving completely antithetical things from these teachers or from these writings. And so in part of my excursion into discovering why this could be the case, um, very quickly, I, I found radical traditionalism throughout all this with like Benjamin Teitelbaum's book. And, uh, and so I, I, I got to this point in reading this stuff to where it seems very straightforwardly like there's not a lot of acrobatics or or you know anything that that has to be done to I mean you quote a couple of these passages in your book um, and very plainly on their face they're I mean you call them incitements to genocide um, so the quotes you cite they're salient uh, they're they're very plain like I said I mean it doesn't take a lot of acrobatics um, so when Nietzsche says something like the great majority of men have no right to live. Or Heidegger says, cultivate and intensify a constant readiness and to prepare the attack, looking far ahead with the goal of total annihilation. Uh, how are these lines being glossed over? Okay, so for the, the first part of that question, I mean, it's quite a long question. It's quite a bit, sure. Directions, yeah. So I, my, my answer might go in different directions. But sure. to the first part of it, I don't think it's really that hard to answer the question. Uh, there is, a, I think, a point of intersection between uh, left and right. So, um, and, you know, one can characterize it by saying that what the fundamental enterprise in Nietzsche and Heidegger is a critique of liberal modernity or bourgeois modernity. And if you're on the left, you know, significant left, further left than the liberal left, um, so, you know, the critique of bourgeois modernity is, is, uh, part, part of your enterprise. And if you're looking for the deepest, most powerful, uh, most evocative, um, uh, uh, sources or texts or, uh, resources for, uh, crit criticizing, uh, or delegitimizing bourgeois modernity, well, here Nietzsche and Heidegger. To you know, arguably more powerful than anyone else, more powerful than anyone uh, on the left, and so they become part of the left because the left appropriates them for the purposes of debunking or delegitimizing bourgeois modernity. Um, you know, I'm ninety-five percent of what I'll have to say about Nietzsche is hypercritical. So let me kind of start by, with something a little more positive. Um, you know, a big part of what defines political philosophy in the last hundred years is, uh, you know, what you could call an enterprise of critique of modernity. Uh, you know, you can think of, I don't know, Adorno, an Arendt, 
uh, Alistair McIntyre, Michel Foucault, you know, a big swath of crucially important theorists of the 20th century, you know, all of whom have influenced me. And they're all in their different ways pursuing what you could call put under the broader rubric of critique of modernity. So now you step back and ask, so, so where did this whole thing come from? Who started the critique of modernity? Why were we even calling it modernity? It's like a, a kind of theoretical innovation. Where did all this come from? Well, I think a pretty strong case can be made that it all started with Nietzsche. The first critic of modernity was Nietzsche. So if you're a, you know, you could be Adorno or you could be Foucault or you could, you know, you could be a theorist of the left. McIntyre is kind of hard to label, but in some sense, he's also a thinker of the left. So you're pursuing critique of modernity. So who do you start with? I mean, I, I don't think you really start with Marx because Marx, uh, Marx believes in modernity and in important ways wants to advance modernity. Nietzsche, mm. the whole thing is a big mistake right from the ground up and it has to be destroyed. So if you're if you're trying to raise large critical questions about modernity, qua modernity, well, it 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 it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to do to take Nietzsche as your starting point. So we have to give, you know, Nietzsche credit for that. You know, credit where credit's due. This is an important part of what defines the uh, the political philosophy enterprise and both the left and the right. So give him credit for that. And I do. And I, that's why I think, you know, I've been reading Nietzsche and Heidegger, you know, my whole adult life since my early 20s. I'm in my late 60s now. So I've been doing mm -hmm. this time. I don't think that was a wasted time. I mean, I think they are powerful thinkers who write powerful texts. And there's, you know, powerful themes that we as moderns, if we're going to be self-critical, you know, some kind of so Socratic thing. That being a theorist is to try and be self-critical about your own way of life. Well, here are these two thinkers who give you tremendous resources for doing just that. And so I don't think that in that sense it's unreasonable to to for for thinkers of the left to to read them and engage with them and learn from them and put them to critical purposes of their own. I don't have any quarrel with any of that. But you have to have a, a pretty clear-sighted understanding of what Nietzsche and Heidegger are in themselves and not just there as resources to be put to uses very remote from there. I mean, Nietzsche would be horrified at leftist appropriations of Nietzsche. So what is Nietzsche's own, uh, you know, purpose? What's his own project? I mean, there is a, a project there. I mean, a popular reading of Nietzsche's, there's, you know, it's just pluralism and 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 the playfulness and paradoxality and just you know letting a thousand flowers bloom i mean that's a i think a very skewed reading of nietzsche and it doesn't uh, survive any kind of textual scrutiny at all there is a sure. uh and nietzsche i mean in my book i quote a a letter uh, by nietzsche where he says there is a center <laughs> you know, uh and, and to his uh, his his life's work and he, you know, he's devoted his whole life to the, the per, per, per that center. So it's not just all pluralization and you know radical pluralism and all this, uh, as as liberal and left readers of Nietzsche would would lead one to believe. There is a core project, and it's important if we're going to read this guy to be 
to gain clarity about what that center is. You know, it's not just trees. There's a forest here and you want to see the forest and not just the trees. Well, to do that, you have to ask yourself, what, what's really going on here? What is his fundamental project? Well, um, the, the fundamental project is to uh, uh, destroy the, uh, the, uh, the reigning moral and political dispensation, which is defined by a commitment, broad commitment across the whole uh, liberal democratic world to human equality. And Nietzsche thinks that that's actually a, a commitment that does, doesn't elevate our humanity to a higher level, which is what we've all believed since the French Revolution, but it, uh, it does the opposite. It, it, uh, it, it lowers our, our, our proper humanity. It, it dehumanizes us. And, it, and therefore, if we're going to live a properly human life, we have to destroy that dispensation. And, and, and uh, Heidegger believes the same thing. In that sense, Heidegger, I think it's not crazy to see him as just a kind of this, this political disciple of Nietzsche. I mean, you know, Heidegger, I'm sure, has things that are, that are philosophically unique about Heidegger. But with respect to uh, the political vision, I think, you know, like Oswald Spang Spengler or like Ernst Jünger, in the 20s, he's a kind of uh, political Nietzschean. He's a disciple of Nietzsche. And he believes, as Nietzsche does, that anything that's going to come out of a, 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 a liberal moral political order, a bourgeois moral political order, is just going to be decadent and, and, and culturally vacuous. Uh, just, you get just decadence and cultural vacuity out of that reigning dispensation that dates more or less from the French Revolution, and it therefore has to be <laughs> completely destroyed and start over. Um, uh, there, so there were two great liberals of the 19th century um, uh, and who both, uh, in their very different idioms, have basically say, say the, the same very important thing, uh, namely Hegel and Tocqueville. They both tell us that the age of aristocracy is finished. It's definitively over. And henceforth, we're obliged to live within a fundamentally egalitarian dispensation. That is a post-French post revolution dispensation. And Tocqueville, Tocqueville put it, um, you know, aristocracy may give us, you know, higher culture, may give us more beauty, but democracy is morally superior. Well, then, so anyone who believes that is, you know, automatically liberal. And so Nietzsche comes along and says, well, you know, to hell with that. I mean, uh, you know, if we have to choose between culture and morality, to hell with morality. Culture is, the, is what is supremely important in human life. And if someone like Tocqueville's right, that we have to pay a cultural price for idea of equality, well, we have to junk equality and restore uh, uh, a, the, what, the kind of moral political order we had prior to the French Revolution. Uh, and uh, um, that is to say, the, the project is to undo the French Revolution. Now, if you're Hegel or Tocqueville, so that's not possible. You can't, you can't undo the French Revolution. It's a permanent 
you know, discovery of, you know, that justice is defines who we are, defines what life is. Well, you know, Nietzsche says, no, no, it, it, we can we can junk morality. We don't care about justice or we don't care about justice in a democratic or a democratic understanding. The only real justice is aristocratic justice. What matters to the people at the top because they're the ones who produce culture. And that's all that matters really in human life. Mm. You know, in the, in the use and disadvantage of history for life as early text, Nietzsche said, give me 50 men and I could create a new renaissance for you. That's all it takes to create a new culture. But we have to destroy, first we have to destroy uh, modernity, destroy bourgeois liberal modernity. And then we create a real culture as opposed to the pseudo culture. You know, uh, you know, Heidegger called it uh, a moribund pseudo civilization. That's the, was his characterization of bourgeois modernity. I mean, it's Nietzschean formulation, straight up. Yeah, you know, so, when, when you speak to the ways that Nietzsche critiqued modernity, um, I, you know, you're very right and spot on in saying that, like, you know, he, he wished to destroy the whole thing. And I, it started, I started to get this feeling that, like, Julius Evola and Nietzsche shared a lot of the common sentiments about modernity. And, and whereas, you know, Nietzsche is, like, held up by the Western canon, if I, you know, if I started quoting Nietzsche at a party and it was like a quote that was fundamentally egalitarian or refuting the narrative of progress or, or you know, talking about Nietzsche's concept of hyperboreans or something like that, uh, I get the feeling that would be socially acceptable because Nietzsche is like in the Western canon. But if, I, if somebody starts quoting Julius Evola, that's a whole different story. And we don't hold Julius Evola in the same way we hold Nietzsche. I mean, we clearly understand that like, I mean, another similarity between Evola and, 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 and Nietzsche was like when Heinrich Himmler uh, dismissed uh, Evola from the German Nazi party, he, he said very plainly that Evola was kind of advocating for a revolt of the old aristocracy. And I, I find that in a way, isn't that kind of within the title of Domenico Lacerdo's new book that like, you know, the aristocratic rebel and that that's basically what Nietzsche was doing, was advocating for uh, a renewal of aristocracy and saying that that is how human beings create culture. And so I so I just wonder, like, I don't know even know if there's a question in there other than maybe if you could comment on some of the uh, the ways that Nietzsche uh, aligns up with Julius Evola. And obviously, Evola is a detestable character. Um but could, could you maybe speak to the ways that they align and the way that the, the things that Nietzsche was espousing, uh, you know, really, I just, they, 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 I think Evola just basically got a bunch of his stuff from Nietzsche is where, what it comes down to. I think a lot of the radical traditionalist uh, mode of operating was derived out of things like Nietzsche says, like in part four of the Antichrist, he says like, mankind surely does not represent an evolution towards a better or stronger or higher level as progress is now understood this progress is merely a modern lie which is to say a false idea uh both of them had like this worship of precedent and wanting to return to like you know kind of like the the greek model of stuff like pre-french revolution like you said um but anyway could you maybe speak to the ways that uh Evola and nietzsche really clearly are aligned in their critiques of modernity yeah uh well first of all 
uh, Evlo referred to Nietzsche as a great cursor. I mean, did you know? <laughs> he, he tells us uh, that Nietzsche is a major re, uh, source for him and a source of inspiration. And you know, that's not an accident. Uh, Evlo is not just saying that for no reason. Uh, he obviously has uh, read Nietzsche uh, carefully and deeply. And there's a basis for his calling Nietzsche a great precursor. Um, I mean, it goes back to my previous answer about a civilizational commitment to equality or the rejection of a civilizational commitment to equality. I mean, that's fundamental. That's what the radical right is fundamentally about. And that's, that's the key to uh, talking, to saying anything about the Nietzsche-Evola relationship. Um, uh, you know, if you ask people on the far right what their core principle is, they would say, they all say this. I mean, you I could come up with quotes from all of them, Spencer or Greg Johnson or whoever. Uh, they, they will all give the same answer. Uh, it's, it's that uh, the, the idea of the basic idea of human equality, of the, uh, the intrinsic worth of all human lives, uh, the intrinsic worth of uh, human dignity of all individuals, that that's just a liberal lie. And it's a liberal lie propagated by our culture in order to prevent the strong from dominating the weak, as they should do. Uh, and Well, where does that come from? That comes from Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche you know, is, is screaming at the top of his lungs on virtually every page. That that's, I mean, that's the, 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 the core um, uh, commitment, you know, and so it is for all these people on the radical right, you know, and Evola sort of somewhere in the middle there, uh, you know, uh, as part of the transition from, you know, the original proclamation of, you know, the principle that, that equality is a big lie to, you know, the neo-fascists of our contemporary political culture. Uh, so it's just, you know, part of that uh, line that connects Nietzsche to Richard Spencer. Uh, they all believe the same thing, uh, that it is a gigantic mistake to found a whole civilization on the idea that all individuals are intrinsically worthy. You know, and so the you referred earlier to those genocidal statements by, by, by Nietzsche, you know, people don't have the right to life, it's a, he should be able to put a thumbs up or a thumbs down with respect to whether someone's worthy to live, you know, it's up to him who, I mean, who, who, who elected him as a, as God to decide who, who, you know, which, which is a worthy human life and an unworthy human life. But, you know, that's his way of saying, you know, well, we take for granted that we're all worthy of, of, of existence and, and worthy of, you know, being the masters of our, uh, of our life and, 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 uh, Choose, choosing what's a what's a worthy life to live, that's all just bunk. That's all nonsense, and it's a sign of the the decadence or the sickness of our culture that we all believe that we've been it's brainwashed into believing it because of ideologues from the French Revolution onwards or before. I mean, on the you know, real hardcore Nietzsche and Heideggerian narrative, it all started with Plato and Socrates. They're the corruptors who, you know. Uh, uh, and established the, the you know the fundamental structures of of of, of Western culture based on 
you know, uh, reason and, you know, various things that have had, and in the end led to this sort of decadent, unimpressive civilization. This, you know, again, more, more abundant pseudo-civilization. If you want a real civilization, you know that it's it has to be top down. You have to have elites there who are strong and who are, who are willing to dominate the weak. And, the, you know, the main obstacle to establishing such a real civilization is Christianity. If any one thing, any cultural, single cultural phenomenon led to the dominance of an egalitarian view of the world, well, it's Christianity. So that's an accident Nietzsche makes his number one priority as a philosopher to totally delegitimize Christianity. So all of his rhetorical energy, he has a lot of rhetorical energy, all focused on debunking Christianity. Why is he doing that? He's not trying to debunk Christianity for the sake of debunking Christianity. He's debunking it in order to debunk egalitarianism. And he's doing that because he doesn't think it's compatible with a proper, proper human existence founded on, on culture, because culture requires inequality. So if for the sake of culture, we have to destroy that which has produced this egalitarian civilization, and that's Christianity. So there, you know, I think 90% of what's going on in Nietzsche immediately becomes clear. And of course, you know, Evola shares all that. He hates Christianity. He's trying to stoke the embers of, of uh, revive paganism. That's Nietzschean. Believes in caste morality. That's Nietzschean. I mean, Nietzsche's his work's full of celebrations of, of caste morality. His, you know, his motto is the, the, the law book of Manu, because the people at the bottom of the social hierarchy are not treated as human. They're animals. They're brutes. They're nothing. They count for nothing. They don't deserve to live, uh, except as servants of, of the strong and the powerful. And, and, and uh, you know, that's... Um, you know, that's fundamentally why Ebola is a Nietzschean, is because, um, uh, is because of, uh, well, you know, as Nietzsche puts in the Antichrist, the natural order is a caste society. And if you're not living in a caste society, it's unnatural. And it's, and it's, it's self-undermining, and it's anti-cultural, it's anti-civilizational, and you can't produce anything that's humanly of any interest. You know, that's his... That's his view. I mean, it, it, any most of what you one would find repellent in Evla, you're going to find in Nietzsche, uh, it, and it's easy to find it. I mean, it's all over the place. But people, you know, whitewash Nietzsche and just edit out all the the Evla, 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 you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, views that that you know. I mean, you're right that you can't you can't avoid it in in Evla, but with Nietzsche's so rhetorically rich, well, you just look at some other stuff that doesn't seem so unattractive. But, you know, celebrations of slavery, celebrations of past, Nietzsche's full of that. And then, you know, the people who he, he deems mediocre don't deserve to exist. And if you wipe them out, well, fine, that's what, that's, that's the, that's the price of having a real civilization. Um, I, th uh, I think a lot of my theory friends have a rather um, romantic and charitable view of uh, Nietzsche's writings, you know, and in speaking to them about some of these later thoughts that I've had about Nietzsche being a, a proto-fascist or that there are strains of uh, might makes right through his work, uh, you know, th I've gotten a lot of different responses. I mean, 
some of them say like, I mean, at least one friend was like, oh, I think of Nietzsche as a, you know, a, a, a philosopher of friendship and that, and I'm just saying that like, there's, a, there's, a, depending on who you talk to, you'll get all sorts of interpretations uh, about Nietzsche. And so I wonder if you would agree with me that there's a strain of might makes right that goes through his work. And, and also like maybe part of the reason why we can read Nietzsche and then these genocidal statements or these uh, might make threads of might make right. Uh, I, I wonder if Nietzsche is part of the reason why we don't acknowledge those or why that has not been uh, as salient at this point. Like our readings have not been more to the point of like, hey, this guy is advocating for aristocracy, caste systems, uh, you know, has genocidal statements. Uh, part of the reason that maybe we don't we haven't acknowledged that is because uh, not only is his style of writing very seductive, but you know I feel like he was writing for a select group of people that were, you know, when he says "Let us look at each other in the face," we are hyperboreans. It's almost like in his advocacy for uh, an aristocrat sort of caste system, he he tricks the reader into thinking that uh, that they are aristocrats as well. And that he's talking sure. to them as aristocrats. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so, you know, Nietzsche is a very seductive writer. He knew he was a very seductive reader. He knew even people weren't reading him in in the 1880s. They would be reading him 50 or 100 years later. He was right about all that. Uh, he knew what literary power he had. It just knew that he, he just, uh, you know, realized there was kind of time lag. <laughs> before the kind of the power of the rhetoric kicked in, but it really didn't take very long at all. By 1900, I mean, that's when he died. It was, it was, he was already an unstoppable, stoppable force culturally. Mistake number one in reading Nietzsche, you know, of course, every undergrad who's given Nietzsche to read and I sign him, I, you know, I just retired, but you know, I, I taught Nietzsche. So people, I put volumes of Nietzsche in the hands of students, a uh, dangerous thing to do, but I did it as, uh, as, as most of my colleagues do. And, and so mistake number one, everyone who uh, undergrad who reads them thinks, Oh, Nietzsche speaking to me. Uh, this is, you know, this, uh, uh, call to liberation to liberate yourself from, you know, moral constraints, and open horizons and you know pluralize the world and that and and choose your own values legislate values for yourself that that's uh, you know uh uh addressed to every man that is to say everybody who's holding his book in their hands well no that's that's completely wrong that's a huge mistake a mistake you should never read and read he's not addressing the demos He's he wants to find his readers among the elites, among people like himself. He doesn't care about, you know, millions of mediocre readers who, you know, fast fancy themselves, you know, poets or whatever. He's, you know, he's he his club is, you know, the Wagners and the Schopenhauers, people of his stature. And even then, of course, he sneers at them. Even they're like uh, intermentioned later in his career. But, you know. He wants a, a kind of Nietzschean generation to come, whether it takes 50 years, 100 years, or 300 years, who will uh, legislate values for the masses on an anti-egalitarian basis. Throw, you know, scrap Christianity, wipe it away, and rebuild a new... I mean, I, I quoted earlier, 
give me 50 men, I'll create a, a new civilization for you. You can have a new renaissance. You just need the right 50 men. So Nietzsche's talking to those 50 men to create a new renaissance. He's not, he's not interested in, you know, a mass readership. Why would he be? He's, he sneers at them. He, I mean, he makes clear his, his disdain for, uh, you know, the, the, the masses of, of, a, of, of, a, of a modern society. He's not interested in talking to them. He's trying to find readers who will pursue his project of A, destroying Christianity, then destroying a post-French revolution moral political order, and then creating something new like the men of the Renaissance did or like the Greeks did. Um, so it's an enormous, enormous mistake to, to, uh, to, to see for people to think, oh, he cares about me. He wants me to be freer. He wants me to be more autonomous. He wants me to choose my own values. He doesn't want any of that. He wants people to be subordinated to the values legislated by the new, new elites. And that will be a cast. And he says it very clearly. Beyond Good and Evil, Section 251, he says, what is serious for me is the breeding, breeding of a ruling caste, and he really means caste, to rule Europe. And then once they rule Europe, then they will rule the world. They will dominate the whole planet. And as you know, Lizardo rightly points out, the, the, the language of caste is very deliberate. And hence, that's, again, links some and very importantly, back to Evel or links Evel back, back to Nietzsche. So Lizardo says, you know, that there's a lot more social mobility in a class than there is in a caste. In a caste, you're locked in. You're not, there's no social mobility whatsoever. I mean, if you're an untouchable, you're untouchable, and that's the end of it. You're a chandala, and you don't deserve to, you know, it's it's like cosmically locked in what, what's your place. Where class, you can, I don't know, you can, you could, in principle, you can move from one class to the other, but you can't move from one caste to another. So that tells you the depth of Nietzsche's anti-egalitarianism. You are meant to be locked in. If you're not part of the elite, you will be locked in because you will you know, have branded on your forehead, forehead chandala, you know? I'm not a Brahmin. I'm not a, you know, I'm, and, or he uses the language of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Aryans, you know, Aryans, that's the, dog, that's the ruling class in the proper sense. People who are, you know, born to rule the world, and and the lower class, they are born to be ruled, and and that's, I mean, that's the the fundamental driver of all of his rhetoric, and all of his philosophical energy, is to draw us back to a world where there are ruler, rulers and ruled. You know, there's a, a dominating caste, the strong, the powerful, and then there's all their kind of the resentful, huddled masses who have to be. You know, their the values have to be, you know, forced down their throats that this is how you are going to live, and they'll be grateful to the rulers because they they will it will relieve their you know the anxiety of their freedom how to live. Well, we'll tell you how to live, and then you happier, and we'll be happier, and we'll have culture, and 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 you know, it's just. Well, maybe now is a good time to ask you about your term horizonlessness, because I think you're you're broaching that sort of right, right. concept here. Yeah. Right. Well, I think the idea of horizonlessness is a crucially important one because it goes uh, right to the core of, you know, again, a huge mistake. We've already been talking about it, but the mistake of thinking Nietzsche wants open horizons for everyone to liberate our horizons, our cult, moral, political, cultural horizons 
for everyone. Well, he doesn't want that. And if you look carefully at all the texts in which he talks about horizons, and so I, I sort of survey some of the important ones in, in the Dangerous Minds book. So what does he say about horizons? He's, he's not a fan of open horizons. That's a sign of sickness. That's a sign of decadence. You want closed horizons so people know what their lives are about. You can only have a real culture when you know the meaning of your life. And someone has to give you that. And how do they give it to you? By legislating horizons. That's what it is to have a culture. Moderns, and this is his critique of modernity, there, are, there is no culture because there are no horizons. We had one, you know, when we had medieval Christianity and, and there was churches and people were told how to live and then they had horizons. And then God died or we killed them and now we have no horizons and now we're just drifting. And we're and there and human life uh, shrinks or gets debased or gets attenuated uh, or dehumanized by this horizonlessness. So the, the 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 fervent hope is we have a new elite, a new ruling caste, not just class, a ruling caste that will legislate values for us, and then we will go back to having clear, firm horizons. Horizons, by definition, are closed. And so this idea of, well, Nietzsche just wants open horizons. Yes, he wants to, you know, open horizons for the Ubermensch, because they're the ones who are going to do the value legislating. So they have to have, like, a clean slate and come create out of themselves, out of their own uh, superiority, their own greatness, to, to find the, the new set of values, of course, anti-egalitarian, anti-Christian values, maybe pagan values, maybe something else, or Renaissance, or something Something new that will then be imposed on the masses, and 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 uh, and then we will have horizons. So the, the the whole rhetoric of you know woe is us we we are are we we are horizonless. That's telling you Nietzsche is not a radical pluralizer. Nietzsche is not a uh, you know is not a, a a liberal of any kind. He despises that. He's not Foucault or Sartre. You know, he 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 thinks you can only have real cultures when people have legislated for them what their life is about. Then you have horizons. And the key deficiency of liberal modernity on his account is it's it's drained. I mean, that's the death of God, right? We killed God by kill, killing the horizons that gave us a sense of a cultural purpose. And and that's what Nietzsche is all about. So, you know, these Left Nietzschean appropriations of Nietzsche, they're completely, they're almost like back to front or upside down, what Nietzsche is really about. And, and you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really uh, take a lot of discernment to, to, to see, see what the fundamental project is, because he's screaming it as loudly as he can. It's a kind of willful whitewashing. To edit out the the, re, the the real core of Nietzsche, which is you know we need we need elites, we need hierarchy, we need Ubermenschen, so that we can live a meaningful life because we can't create it just for ourselves, individual to individual. That's what liberalism is, and it's a you know total failure. Um, uh, I mean, of course, you don't have to agree with Nietzsche that that you know a liberal modernity is incapable of producing culture. You can think, well, there's a lot. That's culturally worthwhile in, in, in a modern society. But, you know, we have to see clearly that's not Nietzsche's view. 
it's it's all worthless and and you have to rebuild from the ground up and uh, ultimately that means by destroying christianity because the, the that's the ultimate source of the rot by profit you know brainwashing us into this false, false idea that all human lives have worth if so we have to you know you have to start with that and and again to go back to his influence on the on the the ra contemporary radical right i mean if you ask you know, I think I've said this before. I ask any of them, you know, what 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 is their basic commitment? It is the rejection of that proposition that all all human beings are of equal worth, you know, and and that's what makes them Nietzsche, Nietzscheans. That's why they're drawn to Nietzsche, and that's why Nietzsche is the master thinker for all of them. And and that's it's not an accident. Or all fascists. I mean, you know. Uh, name me any significant fascist from, you know, Mussolini and Oswald uh, 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 Mosley to, you know, the contemporary crew of neo-fascists who, who didn't love Nietzsche. They all love Nietzsche. That's not an accident. And it's not an accident that, you know, uh, Hitler went with his state photographer to the Nietzsche archives in Weimar and had a, you know, photograph of himself taken to, for, for posterity of opposing with positive nature. Uh, that that's none of that's accidental. Uh, you know, that that uh Hitler wanted to replace a, a Christian or post-Christian uh egalitarian civilization with a kind of, I don't know, neo-pagan or certainly a, a conservatively anti-Christian new dispensation that would be a civilization, uh, you know, a kind of thousand-year life. This is so we're in Nietzschean territory here, just by virtue of its civilizational ambitions. Again, you can see the, the business about the 50 men who will create a new renaissance. Nietzsche's politics is a civilizational politics, not the politics of just petty political communities, petty na nation nationalities, but of whole civilizations. That's his politics. That's why Nietzsche's politics are a fascist politics, because fascism... Yeah, See this, for instance, today in with Jason Trojani, it's the politics of aspiring to create whole civilizations. The fascists tried to do that. The Nazis tried to do it, and neo-fascists today uh, are 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 interested in doing it. And that too is a, a key indicator of their 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 Nietzscheanism. Yeah, Very you know, and, and I uh, thank you for all of that. Yeah, I mean. Uh, and I don't want to ignore the Heidegger side of all of this, um, but I'm wondering if we could get to some of the Heidegger part of this conversation by way of you speaking about uh, Alexander Dugin, because you wrote an article called Who is Alexander Dugin? And I think it would be valuable to flesh out how the ideas of Heidegger uh, and Nietzsche and Avila show up within Dugin. Um, you know, I, I know you've written an article on this, right? You sent it to me, I read it. Oh, Awesome. Uh, it's part of a. It was part of a critique of a book called, uh, or you wrote an article that was a critique of uh, a book called War for Eternity. And we've had Benjamin Teitelbaum on the show a few episodes back. So maybe I could just turn you loose if you could speak to the uh, the sort of Evolian Nietzschean, uh, particular Heideggerian influences on Alexander Dugin and who he is, and and maybe somewhere in there if you could speak about the. Uh, the article you wrote about War for Eternity as well. Uh, I think that would be really helpful for listeners. Okay, well, uh, I mean, to just 
jumping ahead. I, so I know it's quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot packed into that. That's multiple, <laughs> which is fine. Um, well, you know, to start with, I Dugan's very, very uh, uh, dangerous character, and it, it's very disturbing just to reflect on the degree of influence he has in the in the contemporary uh, right, or at least it's, it's uh, uh, self-proclaimed, you know, intellectual vanguard. Uh, and, you know, Arcos leading far-right press, they just pump out uh, Dugan book after Dugan book. And, you know, in a way, you know, he's the banner behind which they're marching, and that's very disturbing. I mean, Dugan is a complete uh crank and maniac and and uh, and someone who, who you know fancies himself as a great intellectual and fancied by some other people as a great intellectual but uh it, you know it's telling that even in russia he's regarded as complete wacko he was fired from his job at Mas moscow state university by going on tv and saying the proper Russian policy vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine was uh, genocide against Ukrainians. He said, you know, the, you know, the policy should be kill, 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 you know, and then, so they fired him, even though he had, you know, lots of <laughs> tentacles reaching into the regime, whether he influenced Putin and, you know, specifically, I, I can't say, but certainly uh, had pretty far-reaching influence among powerful people in, in, in the regime, and probably uh, still does. Um, this is someone who uh, uh, poses uh, uh, on his website with a bazooka. Uh, you know, do real intellectuals do that? You know, <laughs> um, uh, you know he's, yeah, he's, he's uh, I mean, he has... No question, there there's some uh, impressive abilities there. I mean, his, his, his uh, uh, incredible uh, talent for for mastering languages. I mean, you couldn't even count the number of languages Duke can, can speak. And then he propagandizes on each of these languages. You look at his website; it's like you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of languages uh, that all of his you know lunatic propaganda is, is being translated into um you know he's he's widely read and you know to even aspire to write one book on on heidegger let alone the four i believe he's written is is uh, pretty impressive for someone who's putting so much uh energy into political activism uh of a particularly ugly kind um you know, I've read some of the Heidegger book. It's 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 not easygoing, and it's it's very obscure. But he obviously sees, in a way, sees uh, potential in Heidegger for doing for Russia what Heidegger himself hoped to do for Nazi Germany to to create a new new dispensation, a new a uh, whole new kind of moral political order, uh, and a. a viciously anti-liberal moral and political order. Uh, that was uh, Heidegger's project in, in, in the 30s in Germany. And uh, Dugan clearly aspires to uh, re reanimate that project, relocate it to Moscow, 
in the 21st century. And, you know, that's a very scary project. I mean, Heidegger may or may not have come to see that that was misguided. I'm not sure he ever fully appreciated, you know, there's a whole literature on Heidegger's realizing that he made a mistake in 1933, but his Nietzschean commitment to destroy uh, liberal modernity goes long beyond 1933 or even the 1930s. And if you read the Der Spiegel interview, you can it's pretty easy, I think, to see how, how much of a fascist Heidegger still is. And clearly that's it, that's the tra- Heidegger's attraction for Dugan is not so much a great thinker, but a great fascist thinker or someone who can is a resource for fascism. I mean, Dugan in, in the early 90s, just around the time that the Soviet Union was becoming unraveled, formed with uh, Edward uh, Limanov, uh, another total maniac, uh, formed the National Bolshevik Party, uh, the project of which was to float, fuse into higher synthesis, um, um, uh, you know, Nazism and Stalinism. Well, great idea there. Take two, two of the worst totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century and, and they form a kind of dialectical synthesis of them. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, Dugan's a chameleon, so he's gone through all kinds of political transmogrifications. But, you know, under that, under all that, there's still fundamentally a fascist. I mean, and you can see that from the the crazy stuff on, on the 4PT website and, 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 and the, you know, the posing with a bazooka and all the rest of it. And, uh, uh, you know, what he promises us, and this is sort of his, you know, new Heideggerian dispensation, uh, that he, you know, he's come up with some new uh, vision of the world for political theory that transcends all the uh, leading ideologies of the 20th century, liberalism, communism, and fascism, and is, uh, you know, is beyond all those, transcends the, 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 the ideologies of the previous century. Well, he won't tell us <laughs> anything about the content of that ideology. We'll find out once it's installed in power. So we'll hand power to Alexander Dugan, and then we'll find out what the content of this ideology is. I mean, that's that's all just bullshit. I mean, he's a he's a, he's a lunatic, and and uh, and and basically still a, you know a fascist who's tr- trying to you know give give some other label uh, uh, to his ideology. I mean, fourth political theory. There's not even a label. It doesn't tell us anything. So uh, you know, it's it's a kind of uh, cloak, uh, uh, you know, by which he can destroy destroy liberalism and uh, destroy any kind of uh, decent uh, political order and and uh, and uh, 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 and you know, sort of revive some of the worst of the politics we saw in the twentieth century. Who would want to go back to any of that? Uh, and and to add, a, add insult to injury, he claims he's transcending all that. <laughs> don't believe it and and heidegger I, I think heidegger in large measure yeah i can't claim that i haven't you know three of three of the heidegger books are untranslated so i can't claim well i've read all this but i think it's it's primarily just kind of sand to throw in your eyes so that you you don't see what 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 is real politics are yeah i mean so, i guess so feeling... bomb, you want me to yeah, I would love to hear uh, some of your thoughts on Title Bomb. Well, I think it's 
Ben's book is uh, an important book. Uh, there's a lot one can learn from it. Uh, he's down in the same rabbit hole that I've been down in for for the last six years. So I was very interested in the book. And the book has some real, and he interviews, you know, many of these nut jobs that I'm interested in. And, uh, and, uh, um, and uh, so there, there are some real uh, bombshells in the book, the most, the biggest of them, the biggest bombshell being the revelation that Steve Bannon, I think was the fall of 2018, had a eight hour meeting in a hotel room uh, in Rome with Alexander Dugan. So try and get your head around this. Dugan's devoted every ounce of his, you know, every fiber of his being to uh, attacking, attacking liberalism and liberal democracy in the United States, especially as the source of all evil in the world. He sits down for eight hours with Steve Bannon, who spent seven months in the West Wing of the White House, uh, supposedly to talk about Heidegger, <laughs> to talk about Martin Heidegger. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, it's the Bannon had the intellectual equipment to spend two minutes talking about <laughs> Martin Heidegger. You know, he once was asked about it. He said, oh, I think he has some interesting ideas about being. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he's having an eight-hour discussion with Alexander Dugan, one of the most notorious and dangerous fascists on the planet. Well, that, okay, that's pretty interesting that they would, that Bannon, and it was never... There was no indication. No, nobody knew anything about this. It was top secret until Bannon, you know, with his big mouth, decides to spill the beans to Benjamin Teitelbaum, who puts it in his book. I mean, it's, I think Ben himself was, you know, totally blown away that Bannon would tell him this, but he told it to him, and it was all everything was on the record, and there it is in the book, and now we can all read about this. And Teitelbaum actually, you know, goes pretty far in reconstructing that eight-hour conversation. So. That's very interesting if you're interested in the far right. And, you know, if you've suspected all along, as I certainly do, that Bannon is, again, on, under the surface, he too is, is a, 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 you know, a fascist. Well, now we know. Non why would a non-fascist, you know, go have an eight-hour chat with one of the top fascist intellectuals in the world, you know? Um, so, so that tells us a lot about Bannon, and because of the ban you know, influence Bannon has had on liberal democracy in the last five years. So that's important to know. Uh, I, I have some major disagreements with uh, Teitelbaum, and we've, we've kind of thrashed some of this out in, in public with some exchanges, one of which was just published last week. Uh, so Ben's view is to really understand the far rights and to engage in serious uh, anthropological inquiry into the far right, you have to not just embed yourself with these people, but actually become quite friendly with them, you know, and, and go drinking with them and have, you know, sleepovers at their house and become part of the gang. And, you know, which to me is uh, 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 repellent. And, and uh, you know, so for instance, um, uh, you know, he, in, he's written an essay uh, about uh, Daniel Freiberg, uh, the, uh, the CEO of Arctos, 
you know, kind of basis, basically boasting about how, uh, you know, what great pals they are. Well, who, who, who would, who, you know, who would want to be pals with, with, you know, a, uh, a, a, a notorious anti-Semite like Daniel Freiberg? Uh, and you know, Teitelbaum's Jewish. I mean, or so Jews. It's okay for Jews to be friends with anti-Semites. Uh, I I just I've never understood this. I've I've had exchanges with Ben about it, and it's just it makes no sense to me. You can perfectly well have, you know, illuminating, informative, uh, insightful. Uh, inquiry into the radical right, what drives the radical right, without becoming uh, buddies with these people, without becoming pal the pals of anti-Semites and racists. And that's what they all are. And and Ben, and again, you know, defends this in both methodological accounts, um, you know, defends these people. And because he gets drawn into apologetics on their behalf, which is even principled, because that, you know, that's just part of what it is to fully embed yourself, you know, he calls this ethnography. Well, if that's what ethnography is, I want no, no part of ethnography. Uh, I mean, you know, you, 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 uh, it, it, it's uh, that uh, you're, it becomes a kind of almost this, this methodical principle is kind of becomes a kind of excuse for doing apologetics on behalf of very, bad people and, and and you know or or, or just justifies you in becoming kind of groupy and even the bannon book never never mind some of his other work you know he comes across as a kind of far-right groupie well he, it's not necessarily a groupie in order to study these people i mean there's lots of other books that give you a lot of insight into radical right without those people becoming far-right groupies you know so i i have a big 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 problems with that and again we've we've kind of had Various exchanges, including on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, we had some some uh, uh, sharp uh, exchanges back and forth on Twitter about this. But this is for me a line that should should never be crossed. And, and I think Tadabam's just making a, a big mistake in, in order to think that be to be an ethnographer of the far right, you have to be a groupie of the far right. And I think that's a gigantic mistake. But I appreciate the book. I learned a lot from it. It's a fun read. He's a great writer, and and uh, and uh, it, it does give insight. But I could have gotten this much insight without having to become pals with Steve Bannon or pals with Daniel Freeberg or Dan pals with with Jason Georgiani. These are all very dangerous people. And why would why would you want to be friends with them? Study them, write books about them, whatever. But but you know, don't go out drinking with them with the idea that they're you're, you're going to be buddies with them and. and you know, methodological defenses of, of that. Uh, I, I, so that's that's a kind of big chasm between between me and Ben Teitelbaum. So I, I know that you had mentioned, uh, well, one of the bombshells in that Teitelbaum book, which I actually questioned Ben about this because um, it he didn't make it exactly clear at the end of his book, but he did try to leave uh, readers with an impression that... Uh, in the way that Savitri Devi had imagined Hitler as the avatar of Vishnu and the Kali Yuga, so too did Steve Bannon think of Trump as the avatar of Vishnu in the Kali Yuga, 
right? So he tried to leave the reader with that impression. So I asked him about that. Um, yeah. So I so I'm wondering if the name Savitri Devi, like, are there in any of the names that you've brought up, either the Greg Johnsons or the Daniel Freibergs, or like, are is that name Savitri Devi? Are these are these folks studying and upholding Savitri Devi? I mean, because that's well, Greg Johnson yeah. is. Wow. John, okay. Greg Johnson put up this large Savitri Devi um, archive and like took somehow became responsible for this archive in order to promote her and claim, I think if I remember correctly, he says somewhere on his website that, you know, she changed his life. Uh, mm. And uh, it's kind of clearly clear devotion to someone who had unbounded devotion to Adolf Hitler. So yeah. that's a lot about Greg Johnson. So this, you know, there's a, a lot that's very worse right there in that yeah, that's the that's the world we're in there, you know. Savitri Devi, uh, Julius Savoa, uh, you know, it's it, it's a it's a it's a crazy world, you know. And and you know, even if you know Evla's relations with first uh, the Italian fascists and Nazis became a little strained at some point, you know, he he loved the SS. He uh, he he admired them as a kind of a model of you know. A, I mean, they were too. This was true of many of the the Nietzscheans of the 20, 20s and thirties. Not aristocratic enough. Too populist. Too democratic. Mm-hmm. Oriented. So he doesn't like any of that. Neither would Nietzsche. Neither did Spengler. Neither did Ernst Jünger. They were all more authentically Nietzsche in the sense of being, you know, that the the proper social order is aristocratic, and the Nazis didn't, you know, meet 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 that standard. I mean, it, it, I, in the book, I. Um, I kind of uh, uh, have a little commentary on this in relation to Jason Giorgiani. So Giorgiani was co-founder with Richard Spencer of the Alt-Right Corporation. And then in in August of 2017, he quit Arctos and he quit the Alt-Right Corporation and put up a blog saying, well, he quit because because, uh, Richard Spencer turned the Alt-Right into a magnet for white trash. Well, <laughs> it was never uh, intended to be a, a, or never could have been or had the potential to be anything other than that. You know, George Annie got to his head, you know, as the Nietzschean that he is, that, you know, fascism is about creating aristocratic civilizations. He had this idea that he's going to somehow junk Islam in Iran and build up or restore Persian aristocracy, an Aryan aristocracy in Persia and revive Persia. So that that was what the outright was for him. He was going to shove Richard Spencer out of the outright and shove uh, Freiburg out of uh, Arctos and then use those as vehicles for this uh, totally fantasized uh, new Persian civilization. But no, these, these were not Persian aristocrats. They were white trash. <laughs> so right. it was a bit of a wake up call for Jason Georgiani. Well, that's exactly like Nietzsche or like any of these people, like as if, you know, you're going to. Uh, destroy uh, the liberal dispensation, you're going to replace it with aristocracy. I mean, that's, you know, what I said at the beginning about Hegel and Tocqueville is exactly right. You know, if if you have dreams of creating some new aristocracy, you're you're going to wind up with thugs, you're going to wind up with Nazis, or you're going to wind up with Charlottesville. You know, it's obvious. Uh, It's just total fantasy. In that sense, the core of Nietzsche's vision is total fantasy. I mean, if Nietzsche was just, you know, 
diagnosis of the of the uh, deficiencies and debilities of a liberal civilization, and it was just diagnosed. Well, fine, but Nietzsche wasn't happy with that. Nietzsche wanted positive alternatives. In that sense, he's like the anti-Marx. For Marx, you can't just criticize. You have to design a vision of something that will replace this, uh, you know, inadequate. Well, that's what Nietzsche was doing. Well, that's what became fascism. Nietzsche would have said the same thing as Jason Jurgen. Oh, these people are just thugs. It's just a rabble. It's just a demos. Well, yeah, you know, wake up to reality. That's, you know, you're not going to get the aristocracy you're dreaming of. And and so I think that, you know, Jurgeni was exactly channeling uh, uh, Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche died 33 years before the Nazis came to power. But all these Nietzscheans of Weimar Germany, they, they all said what Nietzsche would have said. Oh, it's not aristocratic enough for me. So Ernst Jünger said that, Spengler said it, and, and various people, the conservative revolution who didn't become Nazis, they all said the same thing, too populist, you know, too demagogic. And, of course, Julius Edel said that. You know, it's exactly what you would expect of Nietzsche. If Nietzsche had lived another 33 years, that's what he would have said. But it's just dreaming, you know. And of course, you're going to get thugs. You're going to get white trash. That's inevitable. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, that's kind of one of my favorite lines from <laughs> the old fascist, namely Giorgiani, is like, uh, surprise, surprise, what Richard Spencer is giving us is white trash. You know? Right, right. Um, so, so I'm wondering, we only have a couple of questions left, but I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to the role that mysticism plays within the uh, works of Dugin and Evola, because, uh, I mean, in this conversation, you mentioned that Dugin wants to transcend the previous orders of things, to transcend fascism and communism and this sort of newly formed amalgam of uh, combining all these things or borrowing of ideas or uh, a sort of political uh, syncretism, if you will. Um, but there's a heavy dose of mysticism in Dugan that I think he pulls from Evola. And, um, you know, in my mind, I, I think this this talk of transcendence on the part of, of, of Dugan and... Um, and maybe to a certain degree, the sort of uh, the transcendence of Evola. Uh, do you get the feeling that that's sort of a uh, maybe a useful tool to cloak their ulterior motives or the uh, not so palatable ideologies that they are espousing, or or what is the role of of that within their stuff? I've, I've given you a lot of long long answers, so I'll try and give a very short answer this time. I think. Mysticism politics is a very bad combination. You put those two things together and you're going to get very bad things. It's, it's a very dangerous, dangerous uh, concoction. And insofar as that's what, you know, Dugan, under the inspiration of Evla, uh, is playing with, that, that cannot have any kind of happy conse consequences. Whether it's a cloak, it's quite possible. It's same with Heidegger, that you just... You know, you can spout all kinds of uh, obscure mumbo jumbo, and it's a cover for what your real agenda is. So he he may be playing the same game with the mysticism or the you know the drawing upon uh, Evola's uh, esoteric fascism uh, that he's playing with Heidegger. You know that the core of it is is politics, and then he draws people in, uh, helps to recruit people because they have these ideas that this is going to be some new mystical dispensation i mean that 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 too is just a fantasy 
and and it can have very very pernicious political consequences. Uh, and and it's it, it's an invitation to throw reason out the window. And we're seeing today with uh, with with the uh, you know the the toxicity of Trumpism. It gets more toxic every 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 day, if not every hour. Uh, you know what happens when 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 rationality is no longer uh, has a role to play in 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 political relationships. I mean, you know, you just jump into the stew. Well, you know, that's 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 where this goes. And and uh, you know, it it may be just strategic on 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 uh, on Dugan's part. You know, invoke Evola, invoke Heidegger, invoke mysticism. But but this can never be any, have any uh, happy outcome with respect to political life and and uh, you know a lot of the craziness we're seeing in American politics today, I think that's it kind of telling us that if we're if, if there isn't any kind of uh, foundation in shared reality in political life, we're we're going to have a very screwed up political life and 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 that's and it's going to ripple out to the whole liberal democratic world this isn't just lim limited to trumpian america it, it, i mean i don't live in america i live in canada but uh uh it, you know the whole liberal democratic universe is going to be in in very bad shape uh if 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 uh you know we allow uh, uh, shared rationality be so attenuated by this kind of politics and fascism always involves that so Dugan in that sense is 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 typical I mean you know the, the Nazis in the 20s and 30s they're up to their ears in this crazy stuff you know and and he's trying to bring it all back you know Aryanist mythology you know mythology is superior to you know <laughs> non-mythological views of the world and and then to make that central to politics how, how can this be anything other than catastrophic and everything seen from Dugan is catastrophic everything we saw from Evo is catastrophic and and so I, I if people are seduced by that then we're all in big trouble um and but we are in big trouble we're seeing it seeing all it's all around us I'm afraid this might be a this might be a good point to bring in the the last question here um which is something that I I think you kind of argue it, or, or at least uh, speak about in the last chapter of your book. Um, but if we are living in now, like if the world we're living in now contains within it the conditions for a resurgence of fascism, and we're witnessing the rise of fascist intellectuals wielding political influence, then what do we do with Heidegger and Nietzsche? And I mean, I don't mean to suggest that we want to cut them out of the philosophical tradition or that we want to stop reading them, but... I wonder, like, in what ways should we change our modes of engagement with these, as you've described them as radioactive texts, um, and as a means to sort of mitigate their misuse and appropriation? Like, what sort of pedagogical uh, modifications to the way that we engage with Heidegger and Nietzsche would you uh, would you suggest? Well, it's always better to read texts with open eyes and on the basis of, you know, wishful thinking or or fantasies about what's in those texts and you know in Nietzsche's case it, it's really not it's not that very hard to see what the core project is and we do you know I'm not, I've never suggested we should stop reading him he's a great thinker 
and he's earned his place in the canon, and so is Heidegger. And you know, our job as intellectuals is to read the most powerful texts, and these are powerful texts. So uh, we should continue reading them, but I think we have to read them with our eyes open to 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 what's actually what's actually there. I mean, you know, suppose I could persuade every you know left Nietzschean in the world that they've made big mistakes in reading Nietzsche, and the real Nietzsche is not their Nietzsche, and that that left Nietzscheans cease to exist. You know. Uh, I mean, it all started mainly with the, you know, the the the, the French French Nietzscheans, uh, but you know, we had Walter Kaufman before that, so there were liberalizing readers of Nietzsche before you know postmodernism came along and 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 celebrated him as uh, as their hero. Uh, so I suppose I could persuade all those people, and there were no more left Nietzscheans. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a good thing. Would that cure us of neo-fascism? Would there cease to be neo-fascism? I mean, I've never been enough of an idealist that is thinking that ideas are crucial to social causality to think that it's, you know, it's all coming from ideas. The reason that we've got, once again, you know, that that fascism is back out of the rubbish bin of history is, you know, it's all Nietzsche's fault. I mean, I did quote earlier Richard Spencer saying that Nietzsche at least made him a fascist, but, but you know, there, there, there will be, you know, whether whether this fascism exists or doesn't exist in the world is not just a function of whether people are reading Nietzsche in university seminars. So I don't have any idea that that's, you know, causally speaking, that's, that's, that's the crux of everything. But you know, for we you know we should at least be aware that there are these uh, far right intellectuals who do draw inspiration from Nietzsche, for whom he is a kind of animating impulse, and and we'll understand them better, and we'll understand Nietzsche better, and that has to be a good thing. So uh, you know, I think just just with respect to intellectual honesty, never mind you know politics out there in the world. You know, you should read, try and read a thinker according to what's what's really driving them, and and you know the idea that you know Nietzsche is just a good liberal pluralist or a radicalized liberal pluralist is so far far wide of the mark. People really have to go back to the text and make a renewed effort to see what's really there. And I, you know, again, I'm I'm not alone in trying to uh, to. Um, uh, you know, to 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 tr- make uh, corrections in how people have been reading him over the last sixty or seventy years. I mean, you you know that uh, Domenico Lazzardo's written this thousand-page book on Nietzsche. Well, you know, if you have this idea of Nietzsche as a, a pluralizer and, and a radicalized liberal, well, go, go read those thousand pages. I don't think you really need to, because you know Nietzsche's shouting his his disdain for egalitarianism, you know, from the rooftops. You have to sort of really stop up your ears or just be determined to, to whitewash him or sanitize him or liberalize him such that you can't see what's on the page in front of you. But, you know, if you need to, you know, the, the Lizardo tremendously thoroughly uh, documents, the, you know, the true Nietzsche. It's, it's all there laid out in a thousand pages. If you have to go read those thousand pages, then go read them. But... Uh, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not convinced that that's really necessary, given how clear Nietzsche is himself about what his fundamental project is. His project is to dis- destroy any kind of an egalitarian moral political dispensation, 
And, and the people who've been, I think, most authentically influenced by Nietzsche understand that that's what the project is. And they too are committed to that, whether it's Spangler or Junger or Schmidt or Heidegger or the, or the neo-fascists we confront in, in our contemporary political world. They all understand that that's what the real issue is. All right. Thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Professor Ronald Beener and his book, Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right. As promised, here are three different passages from Nietzsche that are useful if you're trying to prove that Nietzsche was a proto-fascist. And here we go. Genealogy of Morals, First Essay, Section 5. With regard to our problem, which can justly be called an intimate problem, and which elects to appeal to only a limited number of years, it is of no small interest to ascertain that in those words and roots which denote good, we catch glimpses of that arch trait, on the strength of which the aristocrats feel themselves to be beings of a higher order than their fellows. Indeed, they call themselves in perhaps the most frequent instances simply after their superiority and power. For example, the powerful, the lords, the commanders, or after the most obvious sign of their superiority, as for example, the rich, the possessors, that is the meaning of aria, and the Iranian and Slav languages correspond. But they also call themselves after some characteristic idiosyncrasy. And this is the case which now concerns us. They name themselves, for instance, the truthful. This is first done by the Greek nobility whose mouthpiece is found in Theognis, the Megarian poet. The word esthlos, which is coined for the purpose, signifies etymologically one who is, who has reality, who is real, who is true, and then with a subjective twist, the true, as the truthful. At this stage in the evolution of the idea, it becomes the motto and party cry of the nobility, and quite completes the transition to the meaning noble, so as to place outside the pale, the lying, vulgar man, as Theognis conceives and portrays him. Till finally the word after the decay of the nobility is left to delineate psychological noblesse, and becomes, as it were, ripe and mellow. In the words kakos and in dylos, the plebeian in contrast to the agathos, the cowardice is emphasized. This affords perhaps an inkling on what lines the etymological origin of the very ambiguous agathos is to be investigated. In the Latin malus, which I place side by side with melas, the vulgar man can be distinguished as the dark-colored and above all as the black-haired, hich neiger est, as the pre-Aryan inhabitants of the Italian soil, whose complexion formed the clearest feature of distinction from the dominant blondes, namely the Aryan conquering race. At any rate, Gaelic has afforded me the exact an analog. Finn, for instance, in the name Fingal, the distinctive word of the nobility, finally, good, noble, clean, but originally the blonde-haired man in contrast to the dark, black-haired aboriginals, the Celts, if I may make a parenthetical statement, were throughout a blonde race, 
And it is wrong to connect, as Virchow still contends, those traces of an essentially dark-haired population, which are to be seen on the more elaborate ethnological maps of Germany, with any Celtic ancestry or with any admixture of Celtic blood. It is in this context, it is rather the pre-Aryan population of Germany which surges up to these districts. The same is true substantially of the whole of Europe. In point of fact, the subject race has finally again obtained the upper hand in complexion and the shortness of the skull, and perhaps in the intellectual and social qualities. Who can guarantee that modern democracy, still more modern anarchy, and indeed that tendency to the commune, the most primitive form of society, which is now common to all the socialists in Europe, does not in its real essence signify a monstrous reversion, and that the conquering and master race, the Aryan race, is not also becoming inferior physiologically. I believe that I can explain the Latin bonus as the warrior. My hypothesis is that I am right in deriving bonus from an older duonus, compare bellum duellum duenlum, in which the word duonu appears to be to be contained. Bonus, accordingly, as the man of discord, of variance, in zweiung, duo, as the warrior. One sees what in ancient Rome the good meant for a man. Must not our actual German word gut mean the godlike, the man of godlike race, and be identical with the national name, originally the noble's name, of the Goths? The grounds for this supposition do not appertain to this work. Section 145 of The Will to Power If one wished to see an affirmative Aryan religion which is the product of a ruling class, one should read the law book of Manu. The deification of the feeling of power in the Brahmin, it is interesting to note that it originated in the warrior caste, and was later transferred to the priests. If one wished to see an affirmative religion of the Semitic order, which is the product of the ruling class, one should read the Quran or the earlier portions of the Old Testament. Mohammedanism, as a religion for men, has profound contempt for the sentimentality and prevarication of Christianity, which, according to Mohammedans, is a woman's religion. If one wished to see a negative religion of the Semitic order, which is the product of the oppressed class, one should read the New Testament, which, according to Indian and Aryan points of view, is a religion for the Chandala. If one wished to see a negative Aryan religion, which is the product of the ruling classes, one should study Buddhism. It is quite in the nature of things that we have no Aryan religion which is the product of the oppressed classes, for that would have been a contradiction, a race of masters is either paramount or else it goes to the dogs. Twilight of the Idols, Improvers of Mankind, Section 4 These regulations are instructive enough. We can see in them the absolutely pure and primeval humanity of the Aryans. We learn that the notion, pure blood, is the reverse of harmless. On the other hand, it becomes clear among which people the hatred the Chandala hatred of this humanity has been immortalized, among which people it has become religion and genius. From this point of view, the Gospels are document of the highest value, and the Book of Enoch is still more so. Christianity, as sprung from Jewish roots, 
and comprehensible only as grown upon this soil, represents the counter-movement against that morality of breeding, of race, and of privilege. It is essentially an anti-Aryan religion. Christianity is the transvaluation of all Aryan values, the triumph of Chandala values, the proclaimed gospel of the poor and of the low, the general insurrection of all the downtrodden, the wretched, the bungled, and the botched against the race, the immortal revenge of the Chandala as the religion of love. Just driving by my lonesome No one here will call me by my name Cause I went west when I left Tulsa Cause the bridge over the red river's in flames Amarillo's not the place I need to be Ain't that far away But I'll be traveling back down Highway 20 East Cause I took the long way to Abilene Yeah, I took the long way to Trust a broken arrow Cause most of them are just too bent to aim You can load them in your crossbow But you know that arrow just don't fly the same Long way to have